Welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM. <clears throat> Darren Kaser is taking a rare and well-deserved day off. I am Kevin Farmer, and I will be your host for today. <clears throat> Excuse me. Later in the show, we will be live in studio, and I will pose the question, Progress! Whew. Yeah! What is it good for? <laughs> and co-host Stefan Hostetter will make a case in defense of the progress we are making on climate change and the COP21 agreement. I will do what Eeyore does best and take the opposing position in an utterly contrived point-counterpoint exchange to close out the show. But first, we have an interview with one of my favorite journalists, Andrew Mitrovica, that was recorded earlier this week. Edward... Please transport us back in time. Day, December 13th. COP21 concluded yesterday with a non-binding agreement to pursue inadequate emissions reductions targets starting in about seven years. The planet has already warmed one degree Celsius above pre-industrial times. The concentration of atmospheric carbon now routinely crests the 400 parts per million mark. And the last time there was this much carbon in the atmosphere, it was a vastly different world. We might have to go back to the Pliocene era when, for comparison, sea levels were, on average, between 15 and 25 meters higher. Global average temperatures were 2 to 3 degrees Celsius higher than pre-industrial levels. And Arctic temperatures were between 10 and 20 degrees Celsius hotter than today. And when we're talking about climate change, we are really talking about one symptom of the crisis of carbon pollution. And the lesser-known significant comorbidity of carbon pollution is the effect carbon has on the oceans, which is to produce carbonic acid, and the oceans are acidifying. The last time the oceans got this acidic, this quickly, we might have to go all the way back to the Permian extinction, almost a quarter of a billion years ago, the single largest die-off of life in Earth's history, where fully 90% of all terrestrial species and 96% of all marine species went extinct. And if you are listening to mainstream news media lately, you know it's time to be afraid. Very, very afraid of terrorism. I'm here today with Andrew Mitrovica. Andrew, among other things, is a regular contributor to iPolitics, whose columns are also published in the Ottawa Citizen and the Toronto Star. He is a professor of journalism teaching in several courses at Sheridan College. He has, he has actually just forbidden me from listing all of his credentials. And by forbidden, I mean he asked politely. So I'll just add to that simply that Andrew's career in journalism spans 23 years, mostly as an investigative reporter, including experience as an investigative reporter for CBC's Fifth Estate and The Globe and Mail, and also experience as the chief investigative producer for CTV National News. Andrew has also written a best-selling expose of CSIS, a book titled Covert Entry, Welcome, Andrew, and thanks so much for your time today. My pleasure, Kevin. Andrew, with your background in journalism and with your expertise, especially with regards to the security threats to Canada vis-a-vis -vis, uh, what we refer to as terror. Nowadays, there was a tragic terrorist event in Paris recently, and we were treated to a spectacle that you commented on, whereby CBC News managed to fly their television broadcast presenters to Paris for an entire week essentially to use Paris as a grim backdrop for an endless recital of the very few facts we did know and the large body of facts we, we did not know. I don't know if you can call that a fact, <laughs> mm. but the large number of things we did not know. And yet we simply 
terrorism simply isn't an existential threat. Mm. And climate change certainly is. And yet we do not see the same level of attention. We certainly did not see CBC flying their television presenters to Paris to cover COP. And I would just like to ask your opinion on what is the disconnect in mainstream media with respect to the the relative levels of threat that we face with terrorism and climate change? I think there are a number of reasons that are at the core of this, as you rightly put it, this disconnect. I think the first reason is that terrorism coverage has largely become a pantomime. It's theater And there's this knee-jerk response to it that television networks in particular feel obligated to perform every time there is a terrorist attack in order for a variety of reasons to show solidarity with the victims of the attack, to uh, promote and to encourage, frankly, a climate of fear, as you put it, without the facts. And then when the facts emerge, to, to forget about the facts. And the facts that are emerging are also equally predictable in light of both the Paris attacks and the attacks in California. And that is the the security services that are obligated to uh, protect citizens from these types of attacks were frankly comatose at the switch. And that is rarely reported because these television networks invariably hire as quote-unquote consultants, members of the security intelligence infrastructure, who rarely point an accusatory finger at uh, the intelligence services that uh, receive extraordinary resources and powers to prevent the kind of attacks that occurred both in Paris and, and in California. The other aspect of this is, I think, because most TV presenters, particularly in television, like conflict. And climate change, there isn't very much conflict insofar as – because I, I, I'm, I'm not of the opinion that, that there's a, a debate around these scientific issues anymore. Uh, there is no debate. And the television networks, I, I think, think that climate change is uh, – there isn't a lot of conflict there. And the other thing is that it's too complicated. Whereas terrorism can be put in very stark black and white terms, good and evil and all the rest of it, and it makes for very good theater. Uh, so their priorities, as you rightly put it, are skewed. They're wrong. But I think that's also reflective of the, the corporate mentality of much of both public and private network media. And they'll be loath to admit this, much prefer to, to, to stoke fear than inform. Well, I find that interesting because if you know anything about environmental crises on this planet, they're just terrifying at this point. All environmental news is dire. As environmental activists, and as far as we know, still the only news hour in Canada devoted to environmental issues, we go around and around on this issue. How do you tell people how bad it is without making them tune out? And how do you not tell people how bad it is and expect them to take sufficient action? One way you do that is by interviewing people like my brother. My brother is a world-renowned geophysicist who's an expert on the impact of climate change on sea levels. He's, proud disclosure, a genius, but his genius is uh, that he's able to convert these very complicated ideas into very simple and clear ways. And I urge your listeners to go online and Google my brother, Jerry X. Mitrovica. He's uh, a professor at Harvard University. 
And we rarely see my brother on television, although he is, as I said, probably the world's expert on the impact of climate change on the world's sea levels, because he doesn't suffer fools lightly, and he won't engage in so-called concocted debates. So what do we see instead? We see these dodos in residence, like Rex Murphy, who is given a platform on our public broadcaster to spew his ignorance about established scientific fact. We see the likes of Conrad Black given a national platform on a so-called national newspaper to spew his ignorance about scientific fact. So editors are making these decisions. Editors are protecting these dodos and deciding not to give people like my brother, like you, Kevin, a forum to inform the public about what is happening what will happen, what will likely happen, and what they prefer to do, as I said, is to give these people who have no scientific credentials whatsoever to discuss an issue that, as you rightly point out, poses an existential threat to all of us, platforms to spew their contrarian so-called drivel. And so one has to ask some very serious questions about the ethical a journalistic responsibility of editors in the corporate media who are doing precisely that. I'm glad you touched on all of those points, actually. And Conrad Black and Rex Murphy are two real sore spots with me <laughs> in the Canadian media landscape. Rex Murphy in particular, since he is paid handsomely from the public purse and provided with an uncritical platform despite that kind of drivel while also pocketing uh, tens of thousands of dollars in speaking fees from the, uh, the, the vested carbon interests. Yes, I've dubbed him the fool on the shill. Exactly. Uh, so now circle back to something you commented about earlier. Terrorism is easier for yes. the presenters. It's easier to parse. It's easier to present. Hmm. And yet none of these, no journalists or most journalists, most presenters in particular, aren't experts on any field, even with terrorism, with all sort of all things, quote unquote, terror related. We, everything's called terror now. They reach out to experts, whether or not those people are experts or not. Why aren't they similarly obliged to reach out to actual experts in climate change? And the issue here really is, is there any obligation that journalists have or that mainstream media has to report in the public good and credibly and to get the balance of coverage correct with respect to these two issues, one of which, again, is an existential threat and the other which isn't? Of course they have an obligation to do that, but they don't do it because they're idiots. Um, <laughs> Uh, to put it bluntly. Is, um, is it as simple as that? or there are... It is. I, and I don't mean that as a kind of a snide little crack. Uh, I've met many idiots in my life as a journalist. I've worked for many idiots, people who don't really understand what journalism is or should be about. You know, you talked about this preoccupation with terrorism and as a counterpoint to the, the lack of coverage uh, or the urgency associated with this existential threat of climate change. Well, what, what has the Canadian media been preoccupied with over the past week or so? These, these sort of arbiters of what is news and are not news. And, and, and this confirms my, uh, my assessment of them as, as largely being idiots. We've seen coverage about Prime Minister's two nannies. We've seen coverage about a, a photo shoot in Vogue. We've seen coverage about Prime Minister's wife's dresses and her brooches. This preoccupation, including so-called investigative reporters who feel preoccupied and seized with these earth-shattering, agenda-sending uh, news items at the expense of 
real news. And one can only describe that as the function of idiots who are making idiotic decisions about what is news and what isn't news. Now, that might sound brusque and outlandish, but it is frankly true. But the other thing that you have to understand, Kevin, is that having worked in the, in the world of the Canadian media and the media landscape in a variety of ways, variety of corporate media myself, I, there will be no or little introspection about these issues. There never is. They will not sit back and reflect upon, well, why are we so preoccupied with the prime minister's nannies when there is a conference going on in Paris that will affect the future of the planet and the people on that planet? Uh, why are we allowing all of these people to write about these silly, nonsensical, forgettable issues when these existential threats, as you rightly put it, are confronting us all? And the only reason I can, can fathom is that they're, they're content with their idiocy. And, and so what do we see? We see the idiots being idiotic on TV, on the public broadcaster, on Canada's public broadcaster. We see the expressions of idiocy on so-called national newspapers. But they are not alone, as I said. There are idiot editors who are allowing the idiots to express their idiocy on, this, on these seminal issues in establishment press that reaches, regrettably, too many people. The whole lot of them, frankly, I think, responsible for this disgrace. And it is a disgrace. Is it entirely collective idiocy, though? Or is there also the notion that other interests are being served here? I agree there is a lot of, certainly, idiocy and ignorance on this topic. I'm about to single out a, uh, someone who I generally enjoy and she's not the only example of this, but I had a, a real smack my head moment the other day when uh, Rosemary Barton, who is now the host oh, of uh, Power and Politics, tweeted out, it was just so wonderful. It was Here it was December and she was still wearing a fall coat. And yes. I, and it, I mean, she's far and away not the only one. I mean, it, it's oh, like, you're like, going to be <laughs> accused now, Kevin, of not having a sense of humor. <laughs> I mean, I know that's anecdotal, but it's it's just this notion that the sensibilities of mainstream oh. media journalists just have yet to even sort of encompass a growing awareness of a rapidly warming planet. And I mean, I realize there's a lot of ignorance for sure, and, yes. and almost and almost certainly idiocy as well. But what about this notion that well, other cool. interests are being served, like oh, the absolutely. interests of the editorial Look. boards, the interests of Look, uh, the owners? They're not called the corporate news for nothing. Right. Uh, they serve corporate interests. Look, the chief chief correspondent, remember, not just the, the presenter, the chief correspondent of CBC National News took money from a petroleum organization to speak. He this, took money. This was, uh, this was this uh, Peter Mansbridge. Peter Mansbridge. Talking about, yeah. Now, people forget that his moniker, and we ought to take it seriously, is that he is the chief correspondent. That implies that he's making editorial decisions about what CBC will and will not cover and how it will and will not cover issues like, like climate change. If you're pocketing money from the petroleum industry, how can you say you are not in a conflict of interest when it comes to the coverage of climate change issues? Jennifer McGuire is the editor-in-chief, so I'm just concentrating on CBC News because it's our broadcaster. It's not their broadcaster. And they need to be reminded of that fact, sometimes bluntly. So Jennifer McGuire allows Rex Murphy, a climate dodo, a climate idiot, a climate change denier of the first order. She permits him, along with Mr. Mandridge, who is the CBC's chief correspondent, and they enable an idiot to spew idiocy about the existential threat climate change poses. Now, 
I'm not using the word idiot simply as an insult. It is instructive that the editor-in-chief and the chief correspondent of our public broadcaster, National News, they are making a choice to give that guy a forum as opposed to putting my brother on national TV, on national radio, so he can, in simple, clear ways, tell Canadians what is happening, why it's happening, and what it means for our future. They are making those decisions, and they're making those interests, those decisions because the people uh, and interests that they serve are no longer, because it's clear, it's not the public interest, so it has to be another interest. And if you're taking money from the petroleum industry, then we know where your allegiance lies. You are listening to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM. I am your host for today, Kevin Farmer. We will pick up with part two of my interview with Andrew Mitrovica after this music break. Uh, Edward, please tell us what we're going to be hearing. Hey, uh, we got Half Moon uh, Run doing Turn Your Love.
That was Turn Your Love by Montreal band Half Moon Run. We will uh, now pick up with part two of my interview with Andrew Mitrovica, recorded last Sunday. Edward, please transport us back in time again. Who contributed to the outing of CBC quote-unquote celebrity journalists taking money in the form of speaking fees from the petroleum interest. And it was Peter Mansbridge. Rex Murphy and Amanda Lang has she's moved on now, but she was implicated in taking. Uh, she uh, took money from banks. That banks she was exactly reporting that on. she was reporting on as well. And to the extent that that story penetrated our general awareness, CBC's response was entirely tepid. Jenny McGuire addressed it in I think two blog posts. And what they did with Rex Murphy's point of view segment was to put up a sign that said point of view, <laughs> thinking somehow that now we're making it perfectly clear yes. that this is simply Rex's own opinion of things and not an official endorsed by the the national public broadcaster. But you see how, Kevin, you see how this corporate culture has so infected our public broadcaster on the news side that it took, quote-unquote, because Miss McGuire and Mr. Mansbridge dismissed uh, someone like me with the predictable tripe, oh, he's, he's just a blogger. And that was their initial response, to think that they could tamp down the brewing controversy by going to their friends in other corporate media to say that this was a non-issue. But then what happened was is that in non-traditional, the non-traditional in social media, this story gathered momentum because they were relying on their allies in the corporate media to tamp it down, to dismiss it as in- inconsequential, insignificant. Oh, what's, what's you know, of course he's an independent journalist, that he's pocketing hundreds of thousands of dollars a year from vested interests that he's reporting on. Oh, this is just a faux controversy by these little mosquitoes in the blogosphere. But they couldn't do that. So then the response was to institute a review, this bureaucratic response. We're going to review it then. And then, because the thing exploded in their faces, they ultimately decided to ban the practice. And Mr. Brandbridge, after originally saying that he felt that there was there was nothing wrong with accepting money from corporate interests that his <laughs> national network was reporting on, he he agreed with with the kind of the belated ban. But the fact that they didn't see it. Yeah. Acknowledge it. Recognize that this was a dirty business that their so-called journalists were involved in and that outsiders like me had to raise this red flag, figuratively speaking, and point out to them, you've got a problem here. That shows you how infected the corporate culture had infused its way inside Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Well, I think without a doubt, recent events like the ones we've just discussed, uh, Gian Gomeshi and other issues with CBC, uh, seem to indicate there does need to be some sort of culture change. Starting at the top with the um, board of directors that seems to be highly politically connected, Jenny McGuire, I would agree, um, but, you know, earlier you, you referred to journalists as the arbiters of the news, and I agree. Um, they bring a lens, but also a filter to everything yes. that they cover. And I wonder, how complicit are we, the quote-unquote consumers, because that's mm. what we are now. We're all consumers. We, we've gone from being citizens yes. to taxpayers to consumers. But to the extent that we are people who consume the news, how are, are we complicit in this? I mean, if we're going to buy up articles about Rob mm. Ford and, and click on articles about Justin Bieber, how much of the onus do we have? And in particular, I wonder if it's a classic vicious versus virtuous cycle problem. I think a lot of people would care more 
about environmental news, if they even knew a little bit more about environmental news. And conversely, if it's not being reported by mainstream media, people don't think it's that important so so they they don't demand well, it but how much of it this is on us for not demanding or well, reading about I think the notion of complicity the happy fact that we now can acknowledge as sort of consumers of the media is that we can make choices now i make choices about who i want to read who i want to watch who i want to listen to we are no longer confined anymore the days of the four channel universe are over I think that there is a kind of a responsibility and obligation on, quote-unquote, the consumer to make more sensible and reasonable choices about where they're going to consume their news from. Part of the reason I have to, I'm obliged to listen to the idiots, is that I have a forum to then respond to the idiots in my column at iPolitics and point out their idiocy. But if I didn't have that column, I can tell you quite honestly that I wouldn't click on any of it. I wouldn't watch any of it. I would dismiss it for what it is. And I would urge your listeners to make those choices today. Don't listen to the idiots. Don't consume the idiots. Don't feed the idiots. Don't click on their pieces. Don't turn on the TV stations when you see the idiots on on television spewing their idiocy about scientific fact and make them what they truly are in this day and age. And that is irrelevant. They are irrelevant because the world, and this is a product of whatever success, and I, I know that you started this, this with, with some critical language about the agreement that, that was struck yesterday. But having, notwithstanding that, I do think that activists like you and activists all over the world, uh, notwithstanding this, the corporate media, the corporate mainstream media, were, were essential at least – uh, uh, developing the outrage and the momentum for these these countries to at least consider these issues. That was never, and, and I think you would agree with me here, uh, Kevin, ever sort of the responsibility of the corporate media. It was largely the product of people like you and others around the world uh, who took to the streets, who wrote blogs, who, who said, look, we have a problem, we need to fix it. But I do share your pessimism Having spoken to my brother, who tells me that it probably is too late, it's too late from a scientific point of view, that these governments have waited too late. It's too late to repair the damage that it's been done. But that the fact that this was even on the agenda at an international conference in Paris, uh, that's not uh, the the result of of the corporate media. That's the result of people like you. Oh, well, thanks for that. I do agree with, with that, actually, that uh, the fact that we're even talking about this in terms of trying to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, that is a change in the conversation that did not come from any establishment sources. That did not come from government. That did not come from mainstream media. And without a doubt, I'm, I'm known on this radio show for being the voice of doom and gloom. But I'm a very odd pessimist because I've devoted so much of my life to activism on this, including including devoting 20 weeks of my life in their entirety to campaigning for the Green Party as the candidate in my writing. So I have a slogan, uh, no complaining if you weren't campaigning. And since, <laughs> since I've it's been... true. <laughs> exactly. It's I, absolutely true. I work very hard for change on this, despite the fact that I don't think we're making nearly enough progress in nearly oh, enough time. Uh, my brother agrees wholeheartedly. I think he, he, he is... When I talk to him about these issues and ask him simply as a as a citizen of the world, I, and I say, Jerry, what are the prospects 
for the planet. And he said, Andrew, it's, it's not good. It's too late. They've waited far too long to act. I haven't asked him, I must say, about what his, his views of this, this agreement. But he, his overarching assessment, and I have to listen to him. He, his work gets published in the most prestigious scientific journals in the world, Nature and Science. In fact, he had another piece that was published that made worldwide news, again, about the effects on, on sea levels and the rotation of the Earth, all of it yesterday. Uh, so I haven't had, had an opportunity to speak to Jerry in particular about the specifics of what he, he thinks about the agreement. But in, in, in discussions that I've had with him when I visit him in Cambridge and over the phone, and I just ask him on behalf of myself and on behalf of my children, my two daughters, my 11-year-old and my 16-year-old, who are concerned about the fate of the planet, and they ask their uncle, and they say, Uncle Jerry, what do you think is going to happen? And he has to tread carefully, but he tells them the truth, and he says, it may be too late. It may be too late. When I was uh, campaigning in the last federal election, I had a real moment where I was doing the canvassing, knocking on doors thing, and I was talking to a man uh, who seemed to be quite aware that climate change was happening, but he was dismissing it as, ah, whatever, it's uh, right. it's over and done with. And he was, meanwhile, standing beside his eight-year-old daughter. And I, without making a direct reference to her, I, I just said to him before I shook his hand and said, thanks for your time, I said, yeah, I know, but we really might want to go down swinging on this one. You're standing beside the reason why you personally might mm. want to go down swinging, swinging on this issue. Perhaps you can help us arrange an interview with your brother. I will. <laughs> that would be my pleasure. So, uh, and, and, the, and you will find that he's much less strident than me. <laughs> uh, he's much funnier. But he's, he's a brilliance, as I said, Kevin is. And I've encouraged him to, to adopt a much uh, a higher profile, but he resists it. Because, A, as I said earlier, he will not engage in so-called debates. He will not do that. He says, I refuse to sit on a platform and debate someone like Rex Murphy. First off, I'm not going to insult my intelligence and all the scientific work that I've done. And secondly, that it implies that there is this 50-50. The classic false balance problem. Entirely false contrast. So he routinely says no to corporate media types who call him up and say, well, you participate in the debate. And he said no. The genius that my brother has, as I said, if, if your listeners Google him, they'll see a variety of talks that he gives in simple, clear terms, explaining the impact of climate change that is irrefutable for idiots like me. Remember, I'm a journalist too. So, um, and, 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 and so I've encouraged him to do that. And he would ha- I'm sure he would be happy to appear on this program. And I think your, your, your listeners would find him informative, insightful, and funny. As quickly as we can, because we're up against it time-wise here, we started at the top talking about the relative the relative security threats we face from terrorism and climate change and the wildly imbalanced level of coverage those two issues get in mainstream media. Now, you've written extensively about Bill C-51, and you wrote a best-selling uh, nonfiction book called Covert Entry about the Canadian security establishment. Mm-hmm. And one easily gets the impression from that book that we should be more concerned about CSIS than really anything that might have conformed to a terrorist act in Canada in recent years. And while we're still sort of basking in the the glow of our shiny new non-Harper prime minister, Bill C-51, which the Trudeau Liberals voted for, seems to be flying under the radar in its entirety. I've always been worried that having voted for that wildly flawed bill 
out of fear, Trudeau blinked. In his own words, he didn't want to be the target of a Harper attack ads, calling him weak. Isn't that so instructive? It is. This is a national leader who's thinking about his parochial political self-interest, that he didn't want to expose his his national security flank during an election campaign. So he supported a law that much more learned people than me, Kevin, have, have universally said pulverizes pulverizes our civil rights and and liberties into extinction and yet he supported it and his caucuses caucus including ralph goodale who's now the public safety minister supported it without amendments my concern now is that having done that their promise was always elect us and we'll fix the bad parts but the thing is all bad (laughs) and and even if it were only mostly bad how can you support something and then even gut most of it or even like more than half of it how can you how can you amend more than half of something so if you thought it was good enough to vote for in the first place i've always been worried he's painted himself into a corner politically that he can at best only tinker with this bill that that's mark my words this is what he'll do He'll introduce some sunset clauses. Okay. Or he'll, he'll give Circa a little bit more money, the Security and Intelligence Review Committee, which is not a watchdog. It's a review agency that occasionally looks at the activities of CSIS. He might resurrect the Inspector General's office that Harper shut it. But the law will may, remain largely intact. Another reason why that will happen is this. He's now the Prime Minister, the current CSIS Director and the current Commissioner of the RCMP and other members of the security intelligence apparatus in this country, including Richard Fadden, who used to be Harper's National Security Advisor, former CSIS Director, who is now National Security Advisor to the new Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, will all say to him, Mr. Prime Minister, you cannot tinker with legislation that arms us with the tools to fight the terrorists. And he also knows that if he does, substant- if he repeals it or substantially amends it, if he even does that, the pushback bureaucratically will be, you recognize, of course, that if something happens, it will be on you. It won't be on us. That you will still be politically exposed. So taking all of that into account, he has, as you rightly put, that vote has boxed him in. And he has been able to move the goalposts and make it sort of almost palatable by saying, no, 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 no. We'll make these amendments to safeguard our civil rights and liberties. But as you rightly point out, the near universal condemnation of this law, the recommendation was get rid of it. Get rid of it. But he will do what I said. But then after the next, because remember, Bill C-51 was introduced after one man with one gun went on a a suicidal rampage on Ottawa. What will happen, and this is a question that I've written about, what will happen when when there's a more sophisticated terrorist attack in Canada? All of those safeguards the new prime minister will introduce, they'll evaporate. And who will enable the extinction of those so called safeguards? The mainstream media that were complicit in providing the psychological foundation for Stephen Harper to introduce C-51 in the first place. Well, it's very comforting to know that we're still not afraid of the right things. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you so much for your time. I've been with Andrew Mitrovica today, journalism instructor at Sheridan College and a regular contributor to iPolitics, among many other credentials, some of which he forbade me from, <laughs> from even talking about today. Andrew, thanks again for your time. Anytime, Kevin.
to me. Edwin Starr's legendary song, War, which, in his words, is famously good for absolutely nothing. So we don't need any conflict, Stefan, because <laughs> <laughs> that's good for nothing. But what about progress on climate change and the COP21 agreement? What is that good for? And I have tasked my co-host, Stefan Hostetter, today with defending the progress we are making on climate change, such as it is, and the value of the COP21 agreement. These are not necessarily, as I said at the beginning, this is an entirely contrived point and counterpoint exchange. These are not necessarily, uh, Steph, this is not necessarily Stefan's opinion, uh, nor mine in its entirety, but we just thought we'd try to lay out the case for, uh, is this pro, what is progress? Uh, what is it good for? <laughs> and is COP21 progress? And I'll, I'll, I'll do what he or does best. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so I guess the first, uh, the first thing obviously is to define progress. So I'm going to give you what I define what I'm, my working definition of progress and you can, you can decide if that's suitable or, or, or adapted in your, in any way you, you wish. Uh, so basically progress, uh, in my mind is any action that moves society towards a zero carbon world. Uh, this includes building the frameworks to create that, that create capacity, shifting culture, and reducing carbon, and actually just reducing carbon in a transformative way. Uh, so the one, I wanted to make a distinction that this does not include something like a recession, because even though we would lose carbon, uh, you know, carbon will actually decrease during the 2007 to recession. Uh, that that didn't change anything. Uh, in that, you know, as soon as as soon as we stopped not make, as soon as we stopped in being in the recession, everything went back to normal and nothing changed. Uh, and that's, but it d would include something like Ontario facing the coal plants because that is a that is a that is a shift that actually fundamentally moves us towards towards that. Uh, how does that sound to you as a working definition of a progress? Yes. Well, that's fine with me. And like I said, these aren't necessarily uh, we're not going to hold either of us to <laughs> the positions we take here. I just wanted to lay out as best we can, like a, like a court of law, really. Right. Uh, what's what's the best we can say about this? Uh, you know, what's what's what is the what's the best we can say about the progress we're making? Hmm. And the, the strongest case, you know, we can make for whether or not COP, for, for the strongest case we can make that COP21 is progress. Okay. All right. Uh, okay. So, so my second step uh, was why it's good, which I think is probably the funniest. I have a, I have a line that lists why is progress good, um, which is, in my mind, funny. Uh, 
so where we need to get to, what, the, what we need to actually do uh, is to hit this, what I've called the keep it in the ground shock, which is basically at some point in time, we have to get to a place where our world decides that the amount of oil that is left in the ground is worthless because you can't sell it. That has to be a conversation that with the carbon budget that we have to understand that's th- that like this. And so we have to get to a place where this keep it in the ground shock can happen. Uh, so how do we get there? Well, basically, uh, we need to get to a place where it's actually palatable to value something like this. Because uh, you know, these are the richest companies in the world, and these are billions of dollars of assets, and we basically have to decide, nope, they aren't wor- they're not worth anymore, and, and walk away. Uh, and so we have to find a way, to, we have to get to a place where that's palatable. And we're currently just not in a position to just turn off all the pipelines tomorrow. We don't have the capacity. Uh, you know, we, we, you cannot, we, our society currently still very much runs on oil. We cannot hope uh, to just, to just if, if, if all the oil stopped flowing tomorrow, uh, we would not be in a society that functioned. We just don't have the capacity to do that. Uh, and so progress has to get, so we have to get progress to a point where that actually is possible. Uh, and so, and so I have a couple of examples of, of what, of what, like good progress has been in the past. Uh, so something like stopping Keystone XL, like, and to some extent, again, what's fine, I, want, I use that example because the, the counterpoint to this always is like, well, is stopping Keystone XL really progress given the fact that, you know, you know, there's Energy East, there's Kinder Morgan, both are going through review processes right now. Uh, they're starting up again. Um, and all these other things that we're fighting. Uh, but at the same time, uh, stopping Keystone XL was progress because it was helping remove the social license of oil infrastructure, uh, which is very important. Uh, something like the Green Energy Act, which you had all those different types of failures in other ways, but it did see an increase of renewable energy in Ontario. Uh, and that is building the capacity for this future. Uh, and the third one I have is, uh, is, is this infrastructure directly like high-speed rail uh, and just laying that at groundwork out. That's progress uh, because it gets us to this place where zero carbon is a possibility. Uh, so COP21 in defending it. Um, so I, as any, I feel like as any, as any good debater uh, should, I have to start with acknowledging the first point you will make, which is it's, this is a non-binding treaty that, will, that guarantees nothing. Uh, it arguably guarantees some of the money that some of the, some of the capital transfer from rich, rich countries to poor countries is something sort of guaranteed. I don't even know if that's the case, uh, given that, you know, they all could back out and the amount of money is just not enough. So let's move on from that. If, if progress is on trial here and you're its defense attorney, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't like, <laughs> I don't like progress's chances. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Um, but here's so here's so here it is. Uh, one, I think the COP twenty one progress, uh, COP twenty one in this ratcheting up feature uh, is is the closest thing we have to uh, to. It's the strongest piece of COP twenty one, I think, uh, and this is what COP twenty one can do, or this is what really this is what really the this is the the defense of progress is that or defense of this move is that. With each and every successive little victory and little thing that we get moving forward, uh, it all has to get to the point where this tipping point can happen, where we actually get to this keep it in the ground shock. That's where we have to get to. Uh, and and even though not a single person has ever, you know, we, we not a single person has 
uh, of the of the 196 96 nations that signed on, no one is committing right now to stop importing oil, or they don't have. No one has a target uh, to stop using fossil fuels, uh, to my knowledge. Um, but you don't go from zero to you don't go. You look at almost anything in the world. I'm trying to think of an example of something that I've been going through my head when I was trying to defend this uh, of examples of sort of slow progress that eventually reached a tipping point and succeeded. Uh, and there's not a there's not a perfect analogy for climate change. Uh, you can there's exa- you, you could argue something like you know different social movements that have slowly successfully got more and more rights for different people and just you know how much more equal we are now than we were before. Uh, and and there's certain landmark pieces of that, but that wasn't the same, and it's still not. And, and, and in reality, uh, whether or not we are a fully equal society is. Uh, isn't doesn't it, it, there wasn't a timeline for that as there is a timeline for 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 uh, for this. But really, so to, to here's my to in part wrap up my my opening salvo of defense of progress is really that COP twenty one with its with 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 by bringing in one hundred ninety six organiza- countries, it provides a space and it provides people in the space you know, people in those countries as something to point to and something to fight for. In to for 2018 when they when the first ratcheting up happens, then 2023, I believe it is, and it goes from there. And the our only hope, our only hope is that we can build the capacity fast enough that the shock is it, it, that the shock is palatable, uh, because the shock has to happen. And we if we're not getting these sort of smaller things moving forward, we'll never get to that shock. Uh, and 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 we're not gonna. And so, without it, we're, there's just no hope, you know. And and, and you can argue that COP twenty one doesn't really it doesn't go far enough. But at the same time, nothing could have. There, there was almost nothing they could have done. Like they could have come out, they could have said all of the right things. They could have made it legally binding. The binding thing, I think, is dumb. Uh, as in a complete side, uh, it being binding or not, there's no such thing as a binding treaty. Uh, you know, everyone can ignore whatever they feel like. You can just opt out of it, and then it's no longer binding. Um, so. Here's the the final line is we're not going to get there unless we're way 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 closer than we are now, uh, and having everyone having having COP twenty one exist with everyone on the same page at least on this idea that it exists sort of uh, is you ha- it ha- it's a necessary step. It's not going to get it. It's not a solution, but it's a necessary step. Okay, all right. Now for Eeyore's counterpoint. Oh boy. <laughs> My my profound worry is that we're just simply out of time. Uh, as fast as we can get to zero carbon might be only as much time as we actually have left. Uh, in the preamble to my interview with Andrew, uh, Andrew Mitrovica, I referenced the Pliocene and the Permian, the Pliocene era and the Permian extinction. And those are not reliable proxies for what we uh, will or or really ought to expect for what we're headed for. But by the same token, uh, you, you know, to suppose that we can just warm the planet up by a few degrees or fundamentally alter the chemistry of the oceans and the atmosphere with, without dramatic consequences just flies in the face of known facts. Uh, for reference, the, the last ice age was the global average temperatures during the last ice age were, were only about four or five degrees Celsius cooler than they are today. So these relatively, in everyday language, these relatively small changes, that would seem in everyday language like small changes, oh, a degree here or there, uh, a 30% increase in the acidity of the oceans, those don't sound like much. But, but in, historically, uh, these things have been correlated with a vastly different planet. 
so it just uh, it strikes me. I don't know why we are so complacent about uh, sleepwalking our way into such an uncertain future. And to the extent that we're not sure about these things, when we realize we're confronting extreme risk, to me, that's a, an argument for urgency rather than any kind of complacency. Uh, and in fact, you know, with, with, reference to, <clears throat> with reference to those things, uh, the level of carbon that's already in the atmosphere and the oceans right now, uh, today, might be committing us to utterly intolerable outcomes. So the notion that we can add to this at all under any circumstances – uh, when we really ought to be considering not adding to it and even how to get it out, uh, it, it seems like a, a, a discussion we just ought to be having at this point. And the longer we leave this, the more we're going to be committing ourselves to wildly uncertain things like massive interventions with the, the planet through geoengineering. And our track record with monkeying with this planet is, is not good. So when we talk about uh, actions like COP and everything else, that essentially the best thing we can say about them is that they're buying us time to eventually get around to making sufficient progress on this. Uh, that strikes me a little bit like uh, being broke and in debt and somehow justifying borrowing money to buy something that's on sale because somehow that's saving us money. And, and it's not. We might be spending money we don't have and we might be spending it to buy things we don't need like continued tar sands production. And, of course, that's a very contrarian view. But I think COP21 has plenty of apologists. I'm a, little, I'm a little surprised by the near universal gushing about the language of this agreement. And I think we need more contrarian voices on this. As you mentioned, I mean, in, 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 in everything I've read, people use the term legally binding. And it's not legally binding in any meaningful way. No one's legally bound to meet these uh, uh, reductions targets. They're just legally bound to publish them and update them every five years, and there's no enforcement mechanisms whatsoever. They're not even legally bound to transfer uh, money to the poorer countries. So in that regard, you know, if it, and like you said, maybe we don't need no stinking treaty. Hmm. Uh, it, it is just words, and if people are leaving this treaty, and most people are saying these are just important first steps, and I hope I live long enough to see us ever take important second steps on this issue. But if everyone's just leaving this all fired up about the thought of taking action, well, that's, that's, that's good. That maybe is the best thing we can hope for. Uh, but in that regard, we have another false majority in this country awarded to the Trudeau liberals with the, our perverse elections, electoral system. And they cannot be held account- this government cannot be held accountable by the opposition parties. They just can't. Uh, so in that sense... We need activism today as much as we have ever needed it. This government, if it's susceptible to anything, it's going to be public opinion. And in that regard, I don't think uh, uh, Trudeau-mania 2.0 is in our best interests. And an uncritical honeymoon is in our best interests on this and, and certainly many other issues. But um, we'll have to leave it there. There are about one million more tons of carbon in the atmosphere and the oceans than at the start of the show which means an hour has passed on planet Earth. And that's all the time we have for this episode of The Green Majority. Thanks to the handful of staff and the army of volunteers at CIUT 89.5 FM who make The Green Majority and many other unique shows possible on the station. Thanks to my co-host, Stefan Hostetter, who squeezes his contribution to this show into a very hectic work schedule every Friday. Thanks to our colleague, Edward Breeden, for today's technical production. And thanks to all of our community broadcast partners. We know you're out there, 
but we don't always know who you are. <laughs> so if you're listening to The Green Majority on another station, please let us know. We invite everyone to get in touch with us uh, through greenmajority.ca. Let us know what you're getting out of the show. Let us know what you would like to get out of the show. I refuse to change. But Darren Kaster, who is the host of this show, takes feedback very seriously. And Darren will be back next week. And, and, and it's only fair to get, let me give a counterpoint anyways. This well, like I said, I was never holding you to this. Yes, I exactly. tasked you unfairly with defending <laughs> um, COP21. Well, it's, what's funny is it's, it's, it's like it's a very defendable thing uh, if this was 15 years ago. Well, exactly. That's the whole point of this. That is exactly the whole point. When you referred to social movements, I agree. The history of progress, social progress, environmental progress has been incremental change that eventually arrives at a tipping point. But unlike, and just to pull something out of the air, the, the long struggle <clears throat> for civil rights or marriage equality or something like that, those issues weren't really on a timeline. It wasn't like if we didn't have marriage equality by a certain point in time, it would just never be possible after right. that. Or with uh, civil rights or, or voting rights or any other social progress you could talk about. A lot of environmental issues seem to be on a timeline. A very irreversible timeline. Like if you hollow away, if you, species when they go extinct, you just can't go to Walmart and buy new ones. Uh, when it, it, topsoil gets created at, at the rate of a few centimeters every thousand years or something on that sort of a scale, we're eroding it w much more quickly than that. So again, you don't go to Walmart and buy several billion tons of topsoil. And in that regard, uh, you know, even though I agree that we will never get to real progress, we'll never get to any tipping point without sort of crossing the incremental steps between here and there. Mm. By the same token, I just, I, I think I live in the real world and I just acknowledge that these issues are probably on a timeline. Yeah. And I, I think the real question is, uh, you know, say, so let's just play a game and presume we're approximately 20 years behind where we should be. Uh, you know, if, if in 20, if 95 you got you had a treaty and th that ratcheted up every five years, uh, we would be at least in a much much better place. Uh, and so the question, it, it, so the real I, what was funny about this when you when you when you were making your point, the second question was really just, I almost feel like I now have to do a defense of hope. Uh, and <laughs> well, my work is done. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, you know, we've already we've already had the we've already had the I have no use for hope line, uh, which I still find honey. Uh, because there's, I guess it ends up being a, you know it's there's the, the the defense of progress is ultimately defense of hope. The defense of progress has it has to come from that, and it's you know because to some extent, if you actually the more fa facts you know about it, the, the worse it is. And and the and the real question is that you're just looking at. Just massive, massive amounts of, of of sadness if you learn about it. Like it's it's ridiculous. It's unbelievable how. Well, how it, you know, in my in my worst moments with this COP twenty one thing, I do sit back and I go, "Ye gods, the fix is in." And then I take a breath and I go, "Really, actually, I think what happened here <clears throat> was a great number of politicians needed to uh, seem like they were getting something done, and so they they're trotting this thing out and just overselling it." Mm -hmm. uh, and and in that, you know, uh, uh, again, we to, to that extent, we just need more dissenting voices on this. We just need a little more contrarianism and we need we, we need activism on this. Yeah. We, the only progress we've made ever on environmental issues really has come from activism. And Naomi Klein, uh, who is in the contrarian camp, along with Bill McKibben of 350.org, uh, 
she uh, commented uh, about uh, you know what she's heard from from activists in the states. Don't make the same same mistake with Trudeau that we made with Obama mm. to just sort of sit back and 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 bask in the glow of having ousted the 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 the, the vile predecessor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And and just sort of uncritically think, oh, it's all good now. Mm-hmm. And especially when everyone's touting this thing as some fantastic triumph, a legally binding not putting us clearly on a path to uh, success. No, uh, the the aspirational goals might not be sufficient, but the actual goals don't even necessarily avoid three degrees of warming. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in, you know, to the extent that. Uh, you know, to sit back and just like this message that's being communicated that it's all being looked after now and we've have this fabulous new agreement. I don't see I just don't see that. that I mean, as fun as that is, and I, I enjoy a good mood as much as the next person, mm-hmm. but as as much it's that's just not in our best interest. And if we simply look back to, uh, I think, a very the very relevant example that Naomi Klein trots out, uh, that was a mistake they made with Obama. They just sat back and said, well, everything's good. Yeah, and apparently now everything really is good, and now we really are at the end of the show. So we're sorry for that glitch, folks. Thanks for listening and then listening again. We'll see you next week. Two shows in one.